Good morning, my name is Simon Miller and I'm a member of the 10am congregation at St John's Ashfield. The first reading this morning comes from Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They replied, The survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes and the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are under the Father's skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I have chosen to establish my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. At the time, I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was served him, I carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before, so the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This can only be sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad, when the city, the place of my ancestors' graves, lies waste? and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour with you, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' graves, so that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen also was sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a date. Then I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may grant me passage until I arrive in Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, directing him to give me timber to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I had asked, for the gracious hand of my God was upon him. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent officers of the army and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. 
So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I got up during the night, I and a few few men with me. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the animal I rode. I went out by day by the valley gate, past the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the animal I was riding to continue. So I went up by way of the valley by night and inspected the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest that were there to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshev the Arab heard of it, they mocked and ridiculed us, saying, What is this that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven is the one who will give us success, and we, his servants, are going to start building. But you have no share or claim or historic right in Jerusalem. The New Testament reading uh, this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapters, uh, chapter 19, verses 37 to 44. As Jesus was now approaching the path down the mount from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As Jesus came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognised on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another, because you did not recognise the time of your visitation from God. Good morning, Christchurch Inner West. Uh, Richard here, site pastor here in this building at St John's in Ashfield. Really great to be with you this morning. Uh, Would you pray with me as we come uh, to uh, unpack the Lord's word together this morning? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you are a God who longs to be known, to reveal yourself to us. And we thank you that you've done that for us in the pages of the scriptures. Uh, Thank you that there we read about uh, your interactions with this world that you've made, that we uh, discover your character and your goodness. And we meet there in those pages too, the Lord Jesus, and learn all that we need to find salvation in him. Uh, Father, as we unpack this story of Nehemiah this morning, we pray that your spirit would be a work in us uh, so that we might uh, learn your lessons that you have for us this morning and so that we might follow the Lord Jesus uh, with a full devotion. We pray this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We live in the ruins of a broken world. 
Uh, it might be that the ruins that we walk in are actually more obvious to us now than they've ever been before. Uh, we're living, after all, through a global pandemic. Uh, many have had their health ruined. Many more have had their livelihoods ruined. It looks in many ways as though our political consensus has been ruined. Our economy may take many years to emerge from the ruins. And many of us, of course, as well, will need time to process the experience of psychological ruin as imagined futures slip through our fingers and everything feels a little harder to grasp and the world feels like a more dangerous place. And that doesn't even begin to account for all the normal experiences of ruin we face, even outside of a pandemic. Sickness, death, a changing climate, relational breakdowns, anxieties, spiritual doubts, all of which continue to overwhelm us even when the pandemic seems to crowd them out. We live among the ruins of a broken world. Ancient Israel knew all about ruin. Now, having been warned by God's prophets over the centuries that their persistent unfaithfulness would lead to their own ruin, they were carried off into exile in Babylon. Jerusalem was besieged and destroyed, and the physical ruins of that once great city bore witness to the spiritual and political ruin of a once great nation, now ridiculed and shamed. Uh, even those who had managed in exile to find themselves in a place of relative power and prosperity in their new home, the Daniels of the world, if you like, even people in such privileged positions knew that this was not how things were meant to be. This was not what was supposed to happen to God's people. We've just been introduced to a person a little bit like Daniel in some ways, someone who's made his way into the court of the pagan king, Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. We're going to spend the next six weeks getting to know his story, uh, and here's what that story is about. The book of Nehemiah is the story of how Nehemiah and his people learned to live among the ruins of a broken world in faith, hope, and holiness. And as we've actually already been given the secret of how to do that. It's there in the very first verse, and it's contained in the name of this faithful Israelite. Nehemiah means the Lord brings consolation. Nehemiah's name, you see, is a prayer grounded in the promises of God. The promise that just as surely as his people's unfaithfulness would lead to their ruin, so too, after all that, God would bring consolation to them. God has promised, even to this ruined people, restoration, renewal, joy, peace, and new life from the ashes. But even more than that, what we're going to see in this story and what becomes a model for us as God's people here and now, is that the man whose name means the Lord brings consolation himself becomes an instrument of God's consolation to his people and his world. You see, the promise of God's consolation gives Nehemiah the courage to live with faith and hope and holiness, even among the ruins, and so to bring consolation to his people. As we begin to read this story together today in these first few chapters, we're going to see Nehemiah go through a three-stage response to the ruin that he sees, which results in consolation. And those three stages, you'll be happy to know, will provide our three points for today as well. Here's that three-stage response that we see. Firstly, grief. Secondly, prayer. And thirdly, action. Grief, prayer, and action. Point one, beginning with grief. Uh, our culture isn't very good at grief, is it? Uh, anger, we're good at. We've got anger down. We know how to be angry about things. But grief, we're not so good at. 
Uh, when facing ruin, many of us would rather just press on stoically, refusing to let it affect us, eager to make sure that our competence isn't compromised, that there's no chink in the armour. Not so with Nehemiah. Uh, in verse 2 of chapter 1, Nehemiah is visited by one of his brothers along with some other men who live in Judah near Jerusalem. And he asks after his people and their city. And the news is not good. Verse 3. They replied, The survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. This news provokes an extraordinary outpouring of grief from Nehemiah. Verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, what is it about this situation that provokes such distress in Nehemiah? Now, there's a clue, actually, in his initial question to his brother and in the response that he receives. He asks in verse 2, I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity, and about Jerusalem. You see, the first thing Nehemiah wants to know about is in the city... It's the people, and only then he asks about the city. It's the same in the response that he receives. They replied, the survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Again, the first part of the response is about the state of the people, and only then is the state of the city described. You see, this whole story about Nehemiah building the wall, if you know anything about Nehemiah, that's probably what you know about him. He rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. But in the end, this isn't about the city or its wall at all, not really. It's about the people of God. Nehemiah grieves for the shame that has come upon his community, for their ruin. The ruined walls of the city are a sign of a ruined nation. And Nehemiah gives full expression to his grief, doesn't he? He weeps and mourns and fasts. His people mean so much to him that their shame provokes a profound reaction. He doesn't just shrug his shoulders. He doesn't dismiss his emotional responses to it. He doesn't pretend that it's all okay. And you see, what's at stake in his grief is this first stage of consolation. You see, it's his grief that makes consolation a possibility. Anything other than giving full expression to his grief is actually going to make consolation impossible because it simply cuts it off before you actually are able to get there and do anything about the problem. If he just shrugged his shoulders or pretended it was all okay, then that would be that. You wipe your hands, you're done. If he exploded with anger at the Persians and their king who had allowed this to happen, well, you can't imagine that going very well. And while each of those responses might make Nehemiah feel better for a little while, they wouldn't actually change anything. Cutting his grief short would mean cutting off the possibility of consolation. And now we've already reflected on the fact that we too live among the ruins, don't we? And so I want to ask you, particularly in this moment of beginning to exit from our lockdown experience in this pandemic, I want to ask you, have you been giving yourself space to grieve? Have you thought about how to do that in the weeks and months to come? Whether it's the loss of livelihood or distance from loved ones, or being unable to gather together as God's people, or sickness, or anything else, even things unrelated to the pandemic? Have you given yourself space to grieve? Nehemiah gives us a little hint here about how to deal with that grief, that experience. He says, don't cut yourself off from consolation by diminishing the effects of the ruins around us. You need to face them head on if you're going to actually find comfort. 
But of course, giving expression to your grief like this won't bring consolation automatically, will it? If you cut off your grief, then you won't have any need for consolation. But to actually find consolation in addition to your grief, you need to be able to take it to someone who can actually deal with it at depth. And that's precisely what Nehemiah does. He allows his grief to lead him into prayer. Point two, Nehemiah's prayer. In verses 5 to 11, we have recorded for us a really beautiful, uh, wonderfully constructed prayer. Uh, and there are several things that are worth noticing about it. Uh, firstly, Nehemiah begins by calling on God's character. Verse 5, I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see, Nehemiah knows God. He knows who he is. He knows his character. He's a God who keeps covenant, that is, who's true to his promises. And he's a God who loves faithfully. This is a God, you see, who can be trusted to take Nehemiah's very real, very deep grief with utmost seriousness. And who, as the Lord God of heaven, actually has the power to do something about it? Nehemiah starts by calling on God's character. Uh, secondly, Nehemiah's prayer proper begins then with confession. Have a look with me at verse 6. He says, Hear the prayer of your servant that I pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we've sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We've offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. Why start here? Why start with confession? Uh, you'll know if you've been around Christchurch Inner West uh, for a little while that we pray a prayer of confession every week. And usually, actually, we use it to begin our time of prayer together. Uh, the reason why confession is so central to our practices is simple. It's that confession expresses the heart of the gospel. Nehemiah means the Lord consoles. And Jesus means the Lord saves. Uh, the Lord God is the only one who can give consolation in the grief of a ruined world. And he's the only one who can save us from the grief that we've brought upon ourselves through our own sin. Uh, they, they say, don't they, that the first step is admitting you have a problem? And in confession, that's exactly what we do. We acknowledge openly the ruins of our hearts and lives. And only then can we be open to the possibilities of change as our Father administers his grace to our hearts. Uh, John Stott, the English pastor, uh, has a wonderful little book on the centrality of confession in the Christian life. Uh, he writes these words. It is inconceivable that the Christian should ever think of sin without also thinking of his saviour. Humble confession of the one leads to thankful confession of the other. You see, confession is the place to start because confession makes consolation possible. It leads us to the God who consoles and saves. It enables us to realize what's really going for us as well as for the world and to be open to the change that God wants to bring into our hearts and our lives. Uh, thirdly, though, notice the basis of Nehemiah's courage in confession and confidence to seek consolation from his God. Verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I've chosen to establish my name. You see, Nehemiah's courage and confidence is founded in his trust in the promises of God. Quoting from Deuteronomy, he reminds God of his promise that after he has scattered his unfaithful people, he will indeed gather them in again. 
if they return to him in faithfulness. Likewise, we too confess our sins because God has promised that when we repent and trust in him, he himself will bring us consolation. He himself will forgive us and remake us. Nehemiah's courage and confidence is founded in his trust in the promises of God. Uh, Finally, it's worth noting that this beautifully constructed prayer doesn't just come to Nehemiah out of thin air. Uh, In verse 1, we're told that Nehemiah's brother visits him in the month of Chislev. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 2, we're told that Nehemiah makes his request to the king in the month of Nisan. Now, if you remember your ancient Persian calendar, as I'm sure you all do, you'll know that four months have passed. Uh, The prayer that Nehemiah records here, you see, is the result of four months of grief-driven prayer. He doesn't hear about Jerusalem and start mourning and all of a sudden have this beautiful prayer ready to go. No, actually what we see here is that for Nehemiah, prayer is a kind of verbal processing with God. He's persisted in prayer over many months and as he does so, his heart and his own desires have become clearer and clearer to him. The problem has become clearer and clearer to him and he's actually able to collect his prayer in a more uh, clarified kind of way. Uh, There's a lesson uh, for you and me in that, I think. Uh, Sometimes our prayers feel fairly shallow, don't they? And actually, when your prayers feel fairly fairly shallow, it makes it harder to keep persisting in prayer. Kind of go, you know, I'm not praying about anything really that useful, so why would I bother continuing to do it? But you see, it might just be that the way to deepen your prayers is simply to pray more. Prayer is a conversation, and even though you don't hear the voice of God speak back to you, he continues to speak to us in his word and by his spirit. And you'll find that as you persist in prayer, he shapes your heart as you pray. Verbal processing with God in prayer brings clarity. And what it clarifies for Nehemiah is the truth of the hope embedded in his own name, the Lord consoles. He's promised that he will do so, and as Nehemiah allows his grief to drive him to prayer, he's reminded again and again of God's character and promise. Finding consolations in the ruins of a broken world requires grief and prayer. But it doesn't end there, because there's something that still needs to be done about the ruin, isn't there? For Nehemiah, that's about to change. He's about to become the answer to his own prayer. Grief leads him to prayer, and prayer leads him into action. Point three. Uh, By the end of four months, Nehemiah has set upon a course of action, and he finishes his prayer by making a very specific request to God. Verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then Nehemiah reveals something new about himself. He gives us his job description. At that time, I was cupbearer to the king. Uh, In what follows, it becomes clear that Nehemiah has set himself on a very clever, very deliberate course of action. You see, as cupbearer to the king, Nehemiah was a high-ranking member of the royal court. He wasn't an advisor to the king as such, but he was someone who was trusted to be in the king's presence. Often, they would have known each other well. The cupbearer's role was to serve the king's wine after first having tasted it himself. Uh, Not like a modern sommelier selecting the perfect matching wine for the king, but so that if someone had tried to poison the king with his wine, Nehemiah would be the one who copped it. That made Nehemiah a trusted member of the king's inner circle. Uh, But as Nehemiah serves the king's wine, his grief is written all over his face. 
and the king's suspicious. If the person who's supposed to protect you from assassination seems uncharacteristically out of sorts, you're going to take notice of that. And so it actually makes sense that Nehemiah is afraid. He's in a precarious position here. Now we're told, as we've mentioned already, that this happens in the month of Nisan, uh, the first month of the year, uh, and we're told that for a reason. You see, there was a festival celebrating the king's birthday in that month, and the tradition during the festival was that the king was obliged to grant whatever requests were made to him. Nehemiah's also told us, hasn't he, quite deliberately, that he'd never been sad in the king's presence before. Nehemiah, it seems, has been concealing his deep grief from the king for four months now, waiting for this moment. Nehemiah's grief-driven prayer has given him the clarity that he needs to be ready for action. And so he allows the king to see his grief and it prompts a response. And when the king asks what it is that Nehemiah wants, he takes hold of the moment with both hands. He says, I want to rebuild the city of my ancestors. And not only that, but I'll need your permission, your protection and your provision to do it. It's a bold request. But the result is astounding. Verse 8, Nehemiah reports simply, The king granted me what I asked for, for the gracious hand of my God was upon me. And so all of a sudden, Nehemiah is in Jerusalem, surveying the ruined walls under the cover of darkness. And once he's seen the walls and has a firm plan in mind, he reveals his intentions to the Jews who are still living there in Judah. Chapter 2, verse 17, You see the trouble we're in, Nehemiah says. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. And he gives them an invitation. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. Notice again that the wall is, a means, is the means to an end here, isn't it? The problem is that the ruined wall is a reminder of the shame of a ruined people. And you see, what's going to happen is that as, God re- as God's people rebuild the walls, God himself is going to rebuild his people. Nehemiah is confident because he's seen that God's gracious hand is upon him. And actually the truest and clearest sign of all of this is the response of the people to his invitation. They say, let's start building. And so all of a sudden there's life among the ruins as God's people work together for the common good. Nehemiah's name is coming true. The Lord is bringing consolation to his people. And Nehemiah himself has become the instrument of that consolation. What does this all mean for us? What are we supposed to take away from this as God's people here and now in a very different time and place and context? Well, what this does is to raise a question for us. And that question is, how might we be instruments of God's consolation in our own places and situations? What opportunities for consoling action might become clear to us as we notice the particular shape of the ruins around us, grieving the brokenness of our world, and bringing it to God in prayer? Perhaps among your friends there's a culture of gossip and tearing one another down. Could it be that God will lead you as you pray to find a few like-minded people and commit to gentle and, and, and encouraging speech? Uh, Maybe at work there's a project that that you know isn't really achieving the best outcome for the client, but they don't really know that. Or maybe there's a a project that's achieving the best outcome for the client, but at the expense of other stakeholders. Perhaps in prayer, and as you see the ruins around you, you might find a way to gently prod that project in a slightly different direction. 
Perhaps in your wider family, there are relationships that are closed off and have been for many years. Perhaps as you grieve that and as you bring it to the Lord in prayer, he might give you opportunities to show that you're open and so invite others to open up to you as well. Uh, Those are all examples from our personal spheres of influence. And to be honest, I can't really give you many examples of how to do this. We need to go through the same process as Nehemiah here to be able to see the spirits leading the ruins around us, to grieve them from the heart and to bring them to God in prayer so that he might show us how to walk forward into them. Uh, So it goes for our personal spheres of influence, but what about the ruins of our wider culture? The physical and economic ruins of the pandemic around us are obvious, but we've also seen social ruins exposed and deepened, haven't we? We've seen the eastern suburbs in the inner city be played off against the western suburbs, We've seen dutiful followers of the health advice versus principal defenders of freedom. And then, of course, there are all of the non-pandemic signs of ruin that continue to abound, political corruption. And the bills, indeed, introduced into New South Wales Parliament just this week, gutting powers that could have made a dent in modern slavery and seeking to legalise voluntary assisted dying. Most of us can't do much about those wider cultural issues, not in any direct way. Unlike Nehemiah, most of us don't walk in the courts of the king or in the halls of Macquarie Street. But just like Nehemiah, we belong to the people of God. And as God's people, we're a sign among the ruins of the world of the rebuilding work that God himself has begun. And so you see, it's in our care for the vulnerable among us, even when it cuts against our desire for autonomy, It's in our love for one another, even when it means letting go of deeply held differences. In precisely these things, the sign of God's consolation is offered to the world. Nehemiah knows that his consolation will come from the Lord and the Lord alone. And that allows him to respond to the ruins around him in grief and prayer and action. And in doing so, he not only finds consolation for himself in the Lord's promises but he becomes God's answer to the prayer in his name, an instrument of God's consolation to his people. How can we find courage and confidence to do the same? The Apostle Paul lays out a similar dynamic to what we see in Nehemiah when he describes God's relationship to his people in the opening of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. He writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all consolation, who consoles us in all our affliction so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation which we ourselves are consoled by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our consolation is abundant through Christ. You see, it's the sufferings of Christ that bring consolation to our hearts and through us to the world as we're made instruments of that consolation. It's Jesus who left the heavenly palace to walk among the ruins of our broken world. Jesus who, like Nehemiah, wept over the ruin of Jerusalem and with great grief and anguish poured out his heart in prayer. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus too became a cupbearer in a foreign land drinking the cup of the wrath of God to the very end, the cup that should have been yours and mine. He let our sin bring him to ruin in order to raise us from our own ruins and make us instruments of his grace 
sent out to bring his abundant consolation to a ruined world. It's Jesus who is our consolation. And it's in his name that we bring consolation to the world. Let's pray that God, by his spirit, will equip us for that task. Our Father, we thank you for the work that you've done in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that as you've taken our sin and shame and dealt with it at the cross, that you've begun to rebuild us and rebuild your people so that you might, through us, rebuild your world. Father, there are so many things that bring us grief. Please console us. Fill us with joy at what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus, the great cupbearer. And fill us with joy in the promise that in him all things are being made new. And so, Father, fit us for the task that you give us, to be as Nehemiah, bringers of your consolation to this broken world. We ask this for your glory, in the power of your spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.